and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it's my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today we are looking at Luke chapter 23. We are one chapter away now from the end of the book of Luke, as we have been studying out the life of Jesus Christ. And yeah, it's heartbreaking a bit to come to that end, but we'll probably have about three episodes left because I'm breaking up each of these chapters by half and doing one half Then the next half, and the next half, and the next half, just so that we can, um, I don't know, sit with it. Sit with it longer than just trying to cram it all into one hour-long episode. So yesterday we read the last half of Luke chapter 22. We saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw him praying and talking to the Father about you know, his own agony of what he knew he was about to endure, what he was probably in his own way, spiritually already beginning to endure um, in the form of the suffering that was coming for him. We see Judas betray him, bring the um, religious sort of police, I guess, along with some Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. We see him betray Jesus with a kiss And then we see Peter um, cut off an ear of one of the servants of one of the religious leaders. And Jesus rebukes Peter, heals the servant, and says, you know, let this happen, essentially. And then he's taken to um, one religious leader's house. Then he's taken to another religious leader's house. And at the second house, they kind of have some form of a trial that's really, like, illegal because you can't have a trial at night and for all these other issues, all these other reasons in Jewish law, um, the trial technically wouldn't have stood. But they'd already rendered their judgment, made their decisions about him. But we're going to find today that they go to have sort of a a legit trial, a trial by day and, and whatnot. To ultimately hand him over to Pilate and get um, an official sort of criminal charge and the authority from the state to, to, to put him to death. To take it to the furthest level they want it taken. Um, and then of course we also saw yesterday Peter's denial of Jesus three times and his his deep agony over that. And so it's it's really ramping up. I mean, these are literally the last hours now. Um, it was first the last years of Jesus's life, then the last weeks of Jesus's life, then the last week, and now we're literally to the last hours of his life. Um, yeah, so a bit somber, um, but powerful. <laughs> powerful to teach, powerful to study, powerful to look at and to remember, almost from a different way, like then I've heard the story told before. I don't know. I don't know if it's just the age and stage of my life, but reading his life in this way through like through a podcast, um, reading it alongside a commentary, it's just been like a really insightful um, time of learning for me, and I hope so for you as well. So let's go ahead and read the first half 
of Luke chapter 23 and see how these interactions with Pilate and Herod ultimately go. All right, I'm reading, of course, out of the Amplified Bible. I say this every time, but I'm just going to say it again in case you're looking to follow along or you're wondering why the story sounds so different than what you might have read before. Well, that's because the Amplified Bible is going to give us a lot of additional context and sort of filler words and language to round out and deepen our understanding of the story contextually. So that's why I'm reading from the Amplified Bible and not my trusty New King James Version Bible. Um, and so far, I think it's uh, served us pretty well. All right, Luke twenty twenty three verse 1. Then the whole assembly got up and brought Jesus before Pilate. Again, just to set the context, this is after they've left their court, their day, the court by day that they had to have in order to justify the court, the trial that they had him in the night before that really wasn't legal. So they've left their sort of daylight court where they have decided that he's, uh, you know, a blasphemer because, you know, he says, you say rightly when they asked him if he's the son of God. So now they're turning him over to Pilate. So just to give that context there. Then the whole assembly got up and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse Jesus, asserting, we found this man misleading and perverting our nation and forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar and claiming that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, It is it is just as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were insistent and said, He stirs up the people to rebel, teaching throughout Judea, starting from Galilee even as far as here in Jerusalem. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to the jurisdiction of Herod, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly pleased. He had wanted to see him for a long time because of what he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miraculous sign, even something spectacular done by him. And he questioned him at some length, and Jesus made no reply to him. The chief priests and the scribes were standing there continually accusing him heatedly. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking and ridiculing him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now that very day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man before me as one who corrupts and incites the people to rebellion. After examining him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he has sent him back to us, and indeed he has done nothing to deserve a death. Therefore I will punish him to teach him a lesson and release him. Now he was obligated to release to them one prisoner at the feast. But they loudly shouted out all together, saying, Away with this man and release Barabbas to us. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection that happened in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them again, wanting to release Jesus. But they kept shouting out, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What has he done? I have found no guilt, no crime, no offense in him demanding death. Therefore I will punish him to teach him a lesson and release him. But they were insistent and unrelenting, demanding with loud voices that Jesus be crucified. And their voices began to prevail and accomplish their purpose. 
Pilate pronounced a sentence that their demand be granted, and he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he handed over Jesus to their will. Sheesh. There are some, like, really key statements, I feel like, that the Bible says there. (laughs) That, um... How does it word it exactly when it says their voices began to prevail and accomplish their purpose? Ooh, there's just something in that, eh? Their voices accomplished their purpose. Mm-mm-mm. I think it's really interesting. The mercy that Pilate actually kept seeing, it kept extending to Jesus, um... He really genuinely was someone who didn't see any problem with Jesus. He didn't see any reason to kill him. There was no law that he'd broken in his mind that was cer- that was worthy of death, religious law or 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 you know, criminal law. He hadn't broken anything that should have taken his life. And him not being a religious man but having some sense could see this. You know, it was so clear. But that word where it says their voices began to prevail and accomplish their purpose. It says that they were insistent and unrelenting, demanding with loud voices. I mean, this is like some real demonic level stuff. You know, when you have a group of people so worked up into a rage that they, that all sense, all dignity, all mercy has left them. And they're like a pack of hyenas, basically just like, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. Like, just like in this like mania, really, where they're just so obsessed with death. So obsessed with killing someone. Um, It's quite disgusting (laughs) and definitely looks like Satan to me. Um, and how this man who didn't know religion, arguably, you know, had more mercy, had more decency to him than you see these quote unquote chief priests, rulers and religious people. Really, it's really interesting. You know, it does say that Herod was a bit rougher to Jesus than Pilate was. It says that, um, Herod and his soldiers, after treating him with contempt, mocking him and ridiculing him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Remember, that was kind of part of their humiliation was like, oh, he's a king, give him a robe, you know, fit for a king, that kind of thing. But even so, that ridicule, in a way, it was its own mercy because he could have done such so much worse. He could have killed him. But even that, he was like, ah, you know what, we'll make fun of him. We'll make him feel really stupid. Um, and then we'll just send him on back to Pilate because truth be told, we, we can't justify taking this man's life. And at the end of the day, they kind of have to answer for what they do. They were a nation of laws, albeit, you know, bizarre in their own right, but they were, you know. He, they couldn't just kill somebody because people wanted someone killed. You know, laws don't allow that. And yet, there was... I guess there was justification in the eyes of the Jews, you know, when you when you extrapolate out the Jewish law the way that they would do and you bend it to suit your needs, whims and desires, then no doubt there was some way for them to extort the law, so to speak, and and make it say that this genuinely good, holy, wonderful person in the name of Jesus was somehow deserving of death like I guess there is a way, if you try hard enough, to twist anything into, um, into your will. 
And that's what we see here. But man, the power of a crowd, you know, the power of a crowd in unison, asking for something that was flatly illegal, um, but ultimately prevailing in that. It's really, really, really wild to me. The power of the masses for good or for evil in this case. So let's take a look now. Um, That was the first half of Luke 23. Let's take a look um, in the commentary and see what else they can add to our understanding here. So starting with when he's first led up to Pilate and says that the Roman government did not allow the Jewish leaders the authority to execute a criminal. The religious leaders therefore sent Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, over the region of Judea. The Jewish leaders had reason to expect a favorable result when they went to Pilate. Secular history shows that Pilate was a cruel, ruthless man, completely insensitive to the moral feelings of others. Surely, they thought, Pilate will put this Jesus to death. Philo, the ancient Jewish scholar from Alexandria, described Pilate as this. His corruption, his acts of insolence, his rapine, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity. Wow, sounds like a pretty terrible guy, actually. (laughs) I was just talking about how they're a nation of laws, you know? I'm just going to go around killing people, but it's like, oh, actually, he was just the type. (laughs) He was just the type to kill freely. Um, so here's what they say to him, right? To convince Pilate that you need to kill him. They say, we found this man perverting the nation, forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Interesting. First of all, there's literally nothing about Jesus that would have been perverting a nation. Second of all, he absolutely never uh, forbid people to pay taxes to Caesar. And really, he's just let other people announce him as Christ or call him a king. Those those specific words, I think, would rarely have come out of his mouth. But anyway, interesting the lies they were willing to say. Um, so at the same time, the religious leaders knew Pilate would be unconcerned with the accusation of blasphemy before the religious council. Therefore, they brought three false accusations. One, that Jesus was a revolutionary, perverting the nation. Two, that Jesus incited the people not to pay their taxes. And three, that Jesus claimed to be a king in opposition to Caesar. Oh, man, these sly guys, eh? Then Pilate turns to him and he says, so are you the king of the Jews? We can only wonder what Pilate thought when he first saw Jesus, when he saw this beaten and bloodied man before him. Jesus didn't look especially regal or majestic as he stood before Pilate, so the Roman governor um, was probably sarcastic or ironic when he asked this question. Pilate was evidently not alarmed by the charge brought against Jesus. Why? Apparently, at first glance, he saw that the man before him was not likely to be a pretender to royalty in any sense that he needed to trouble himself about. The you in, in an emphatic position in verse uh, Matthew twenty seven eleven suggests when he says, are you the king of the Jews? He's saying, you, king of the Jews? Like, as if, like, yeah, right. And then Jesus says to him, it is as you say. Jesus gave no majestic defense and performed no instant miracle to save his own life. Instead, Jesus gave Pilate the same simple reply he gave to the high priest. But Pilate ultimately said, I find no fault in this man. That was Pilate's verdict. Though Pilate was a cruel, ruthless man, he wasn't stupid. He could see through the motives of the religious leaders, and he had no problem in estimating Jesus and the whole situation by the declaration of, I find no fault in this man. 
But in response, the religious leaders became more fierce and emphasized their accusation that Jesus was a leader of insurrection by saying that he stirs up the people. This was a crime that any Roman governor would be concerned with. But as soon as he knew that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Pilate remained perplexed and unwilling to stand behind his verdict that Jesus was not guilty. So he sent Jesus to Herod because Jesus was from Galilee, the area that Herod ruled. The city of Nazareth in which Christ had continued in till he was 30 years of age and that of Capernaum in which he principally resided the last years of his life were both in lower Galilee of which Herod was tetrarch. Pilate was probably glad of this opportunity to pay a little respect to Herod whom it is likely he had irritated and with whom he now wished to be friends. The word sent off was a technical word for sending a prisoner from one authority to another when he sent him off to Herod. Then we see in verse 8 that Herod um, sees Jesus. He's super excited because he had really wanted to see him. He was very, very thrilled with this moment. He wanted to see a miracle. He'd heard about all the things Jesus was doing and he really wanted to see a miracle. Then it says he questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus said absolutely nothing to him. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. It's interesting. You see a lot of talking. You see a lot of talking from Herod. You see a lot of talking from the chief priests and the scribes and guess who you hear nothing out of jesus there's a lesson in that (laughs) then herod with his men of war treated jesus with contempt and mocked him arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. and that very day Pilate and herod became friends with each other so herod had surely heard much about jesus but his only interest was a desire to be amused and and entertained this son of herod the great never took jesus seriously Certain of the old writers delight to remark that as there were four evangelists to do honor to our Lord, so were there four judges to do him shame, Annas and Caiaphas, Pilate and Herod. Herod gave his attention to Jesus and was even exceedingly glad to see him. He wanted to know from Jesus on Herod's own terms. He wanted to hear from Jesus on Herod's own terms and wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. Yet for all this, Herod's interest in Jesus was not sincere and was to his condemnation, not his praise. At one time, Herod Antipas had expressed some religious interest. He heard the word of God from John the Baptist, according to Mark 6. Yet intending to continue in his sin, he hardened his heart against God and his word, and Herod ultimately became dead to his conscience. At that point, Herod only wanted to hear from Jesus what he wanted to hear, which is why it says he questioned him with many words. He wanted Jesus to prove himself, demanding a miracle. Many today also demand a miracle from Jesus as evidence, and it may be true that Jesus thinks of them as he thought of Herod. There was left to Herod no feeling towards Jesus, but the craving after something new, the desire to be astonished, the wish to be amused. There sits the cunning prince, divining what the wonder will be, regarding even displays of divine power as mere showman's tricks or magician's illusions says Spurgeon. Herod governed over Galilee where Jesus spent most of his ministry. He had countless opportunities to hear Jesus again and again. Jesus did not speak in secret meetings and hidden places. All this led to Jesus to all this led Jesus to understand the truth about Herod. He was not a sincere seeker. Herod thought, let's hear an answer from the great teacher. Let's see a miracle from the miracle man. 
Jesus may have thought in response, I have nothing for you, the murderer of my cousin John the Baptist. He who answered blind beggars when they cried for mercy is silent to a prince who only seeks to gratify his own irreverent curiosity. Woo! That's so good. That's another Spurgeon quote there. It says, He who answered blind beggars when they cried for mercy is silent to a prince who only seeks to gratify his own irreverent curiosity. Man, that's good. Jesus understood that Herod was a wretched, shallow man and had therefore nothing to say to him. The same man who murdered John the Baptist now regarded Jesus as a miracle performer for his own entertainment. Even when others vehemently accused him, Jesus had nothing to say to Herod. Then, as we saw, Herod and his men of war um, act very mockingly towards him. It says the contempt and mockery showed what Herod really thought of Jesus in the end. When Jesus refused to entertain him, Herod entertained himself by mistreating Jesus. The mockery made it plain that Herod did not take the charge seriously. That is the really frightening thing about the incident. With the Son of God before him, Herod could only joke around. Significantly, Herod and Pilate became friends that day. They found no common ground except their opposition to Jesus. I do hope if there are any here that are true-hearted Christians, if they have had any ill will towards one another, they will think it a great shame that Herod and Pilate should be friends, and that any two followers of Jesus should not be friends at the sight of the suffering master, says Spurgeon. To this point, Luke 23 shows three different groups who hated and rejected Jesus. Because of fear and envy, the religious leaders hated Jesus. Pilate knew something of who Jesus was, but was unwilling to make an unpopular stand for him. And Herod didn't even take Jesus seriously. He was only interested in amusement and entertainment. Then it says in verse 13 that Pilate, um, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, he said to them, because by this point, right, Herod's returned Jesus to Pilate, and he says, you've brought me this man as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I do not find fault in him concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. So Pilate clearly and eloquently declared Jesus innocent of any crime. This was the result of his careful examination of both Jesus and the evidence brought against him. Pilate did not suggest a light punishment for Jesus. The Roman custom of scourging was a brutal whipping. The blows came from a whip with many leather strands, each having sharp pieces of bone or metal at the ends. It reduced the back to raw flesh, and it was not unusual for a criminal to die from a scourging, even before crucifixion. This was not just. An innocent man does not deserve even a light punishment, much less the severe one suggested by the words when he says, I will chastise him. Pilate believed he had a way for Jesus to escape death. He planned to release him according to the custom of releasing a prisoner every Passover season. Pilate perhaps thought if this man claimed to be king and is even the slightest bit hostile to Rome, then the crowd will love him. These Jewish leaders don't want Jesus to go free, but the crowd will sympathize with him. All right, so now we're uh, down to verse 18, 
And this is where the crowd ultimately makes its choice. It says, they all cried out at once, saying, Away with Jesus, release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them. But they shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And as he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, he delivered Jesus to their will. So the crowd whom Pilate was convinced would release Jesus instead condemned him. Because of this, Pilate did not find the courage to oppose both the religious leaders and the crowd. This would have been a strange, almost insane scene. A cruel, ruthless Roman governor trying to win the life of a miracle-working Jesus Jewish teacher against the strenuous efforts of both the Jewish leaders and the crowd. Yeah, I can only imagine. Like, that is just... (laughs) Oh my god, it just defies logic. It defies logic, the whole situation there. Just demonic, truly. (laughs) Their loud cries give the impression that a riot was beginning to build up. It must have been obvious to Pilate that the situation was becoming increasingly ugly. We may imagine that many in this crowd had, just a few days before, cried out Hosanna to Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. Yet it is probable that most of those who cried crucify him were local residents of Jerusalem, not the pilgrims from Galilee and other places who welcomed Jesus on the day that he entered the city. The crowd rejected Jesus and embraced Barabbas, whose name means son of the father and who was a terrorist and a murderer. If anyone should be able to say, Jesus died for me, it was Barabbas. He knew what it was to have Jesus die on his behalf, the innocent for the guilty. In the last sentence that we've read in this half of the chapter, it says, ultimately, Pilate delivered Jesus to their will. This was how Pilate perceived his actions, and it was partly true. In a larger sense, Jesus was delivered to his Father's will and the eternal purpose of God, predestined before the world was ever created, and it would certainly be accomplished. Mm. Man, oh man, the power of the crowd. I think it's an interesting thing that it points out that Pilate may well have been concerned as well about the people beginning to riot or rebel. You know, as we know, uh, 70 years from this point in history, Jesus uh, prophesied and it would come to be that the Roman army would come and ultimately destroy um, Jerusalem. But it's almost like there was this constant tension that the Roman occupiers um, were living in and with during their time, you know, occupying Israel. You know, the Israeli people didn't want them there. The Jewish people didn't want them there. Facts, you know, that's just how it was. And so there was constantly this like stress and tension of the Romans trying to snuff out rebellion and the rebels trying to find ways to find chinks in the armor of the Roman military. And so you could understand on a political level, if you have a large groups of zealous, religious, um, influential people and regular people in this affluent city of Jerusalem demanding this man be killed and they're getting more and more aggressive more and more loud more and more hostile and your number one job is to keep the peace 
at this time. Um, you can understand from a political perspective, it was expedient for him to deliver Jesus over to their will um, in order to you know, continue to buy the Roman military some time until they would ultimately, as we know, get so sick of how the Jews constantly rebelled against them that they were just going to wipe them out. But So it's important, I guess, to see it from that perspective. But yeah, I, I guess really, if, if the Jewish people wanted this man killed, you know, what was he going to say? How how much was this man who it's are you know who he's labeled at the very beginning of this chapter by historians as being a pretty horrible person? He doesn't seem the type who was going to really go to bat for Jesus. He definitely tried, and I think he tried a lot more than I would have expected someone of his character to try. But at the end of the day, politically, it made sense to give the crowd what they wanted over resisting them and possibly having a major rebellion, siege, riot on his hands, you know? But I think the thing that just blows my mind is like, I understand the chief priests and the Pharisees being mad at Jesus, right? They're humiliated. His legend has spread across the land. They all feel like jokers. They're absolutely sick and tired of it. They're eaten up with hate and envy. But who are all these other people? Like, what are they doing? What are they doing? Like, how in the span of whatever the minimal amount of days he's been in Jerusalem... Who has been going out riling up people to come show up on this trial day with Pilate to demand his crucifixion? Like, I expect that the the chief priests and the elders might be out there doing some trash like this. But it says, and the people. Who are these people? And, And, you know, you see people saying, well, oh, it was the ones who were crying out to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, when he came into the city. But if so, how the heck did they change, like... Camps that fast. I don't understand. And if it isn't those people, if the people who cried out Hosanna, Hosanna are weeping and so devastated over what's happening to Jesus, then who are these people? Are these just people that are irritated? Are they just like, you know, onlookers who just watch Jesus going through their city healing and they just like really annoyed by it? Like, are they those, like, what people? would be willing to go out of their way to Pilate's headquarters, screaming and getting almost hostile and like violently aggressive with their words, demanding the death of this 100% innocent person. Like, I just don't understand. I need context. I need to, I need to know who these people are and what motivated them. I mean, we could just say it was like the demonic, it was just the timing and maybe God turned their hearts, maybe God, I don't know, like, I don't know, but it just feels like there has to be something that switched in the minds and hearts of a large enough amount of people to just come out there and demand his life. It's not like they were coming to Pilate and be like, you know what, this guy's like really inconvenient, you know, he really upsets my traffic, like the traffic pattern on my way to work, like he's kind of a hassle, you know, like, but you know, maybe going and like airing their grievances or their complaints. But no, these are people who are asking for him to die. That is a next level amount of hatred. Were the Pharisees just going and whispering in people's ear over the last 24 to 48 hours and being like, don't you just hate him? Like, doesn't he like, there's something about him that's not right. Don't you agree? Like, he needs to die. Like, he's clearly like upsetting our culture too much. He needs to die. Like, how are they, what are they doing to make people mad enough to come do that 
to come join in and get the numbers that they need to create that that intimidation factor to pilot. I just don't know. I, I can't understand it. I mean, I can think like Jesus, you know, driving out all the money changers and whatnot at the temple when he first arrives in town. Like, maybe those were part of the people who were upset. Like, who had he offended? Like, who are the sum total of the people he might have offended in that city at that time over the course of the last three years? You know, I'm guessing whoever those people may be would be the people. You know, they talk about a lot of people showing up in Passover for the Passover feast that wouldn't even normally live there. Um, how many people Heidi offended over the last three years that all decided to like take their moment, get riled up. And you also wonder how many people showed up to that trial to just sort of join in like, yeah, Jesus, I don't like him. But that mania that kind of happens in a crowd, you know, that group think that sort of hysteria that erupts throughout people and they end up saying and doing things that like if they had been outside of the crowd they would have never acted like that but they get caught up in that moment I don't know it just it's demonic it's so demonic but I have always wondered that I have always wondered why and how the people did what they did I understand it from the perspective of the bad the bad leaders the Pharisees and whatnot, but I just, I never understood it from the regular people that were there. Um, I want to actually look. Um, I want to actually look really quick, if you don't mind, just give me a moment here. Um, I'm looking in Matthew to see what it says about this as well, because I did think that the, the commentary... Um, would have said a bit more about it, but it doesn't. Um, let's see. I'm going to Matthew 27. Okay, let's let's read a little bit here. Matthew 27, because this is going to give a different vantage point of that same moment when when right while Jesus is being condemned and and whatnot. It says, when it was morning, and all the chief priests and elders of the People, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Court, conferred together against Jesus, plotting how to put him to death, since under Roman rule they had no power to execute anyone. They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor of Judea, who had the authority to condemn prisoners to death. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was gripped with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They replied, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And throwing the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary, he left and went away and hung himself. The chief priests, picking up the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put these in the treasury of the temple because it is the price of blood. So after consultation, they used the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that piece of ground has been called the field of blood to this day. Then the words spoken by Jeremiah the prophet were fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave him for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before Pilate the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? In affirmation, Jesus said to him, It is as you say. But when the charges were brought against him by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. 
Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they are testifying against you? But Jesus did not reply to him, not even to a single accusation, so that the governor was greatly astonished. Now at the feast of the Passover, the governor was in the habit of setting free any one prisoner whom the people chose. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner, guilty of insurrection and murder, called Barabbas. So when they had assembled for that purpose, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to set free for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For Pilate knew that it was because of jealousy that the chief priests and elders had handed Jesus over to him. While he was seated on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Having nothing, have nothing to do with that righteous and innocent man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. The governor said to them, Which of the two do you wish me to set free for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all reply, replied, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What has he done that is evil? But they continued shouting all the louder, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but rather that a riot was breaking out, he took water and washed his hands to ceremonially cleanse himself of guilt in the presence of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this righteous man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered, Let the responsibility for his blood be on us and on our children. So he set Barabbas free for them. But after having Jesus severely whipped, he handed him over to be crucified. Man, that's such a good perspective getting Matthew's words because we see we see Judas, his betrayer. We see how he immediately regrets uh, what he's done now that he sees that Jesus is going to be put to death. He goes and hangs himself. I mean, he just he he goes out and ends it. I mean, the 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 anxiety, the stress, the destruction of his soul must have been so severe that he couldn't take it. There was another prophecy fulfilled in that by the fact that the 30 pieces of silver, it was already prophesied in Jeremiah. That would be the cost of Jesus's life, the worth of Jesus's life. And these, these humans' eyes was 30 pieces of silver. Um, and it says, all it says about this crowd of people who are demanding Jesus be crucified, it says that, what does it say? How did it, how did it word him? Um, the chief priests and the elders had stirred up the crowd, had stirred up the crowd. So, I mean, what is it? Are these people just so easily influenceable that all these chief priests and elders needed to do was just stand there and say, he's evil, crucify him. And everyone would, uh, would look over and be like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. He's evil, crucify him. Like, it's just, so, <laughs> it's just, what the heck? Could no one think for themselves? To what degree did they stir the crowd, influence the crowd, persuade the crowd? What did they do? And why were they so easy to persuade towards something so insanely evil? That's why I just feel like there had to have been just such a demonic presence in the space. Just the spirit of death must have been there, just sort of luring people towards it and getting them to crave this just absolutely evil thing that they had no justification for. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good to read it out of Matthew because then we get just a little bit more context from a different perspective. We see also that uh, Pilate's wife was advocating for Jesus, that she'd had a dream and she knew that this man was holy. And she's like, hey, don't have any part in killing this man. You will regret it. 
And so he tries in his own way to wash his hands of it so he can separate himself from from any part of killing an innocent person. Which is, again, very interesting that somebody as ruthless as he was proclaimed to be didn't want to be ruthless in this moment and didn't want to be associated with the ruthlessness. And um, even that moment, even that... I'm just sorry, I'm just listing off things that really jump out to me because I feel like there are so many things in this story that have always stood out to me, but this stands out to me in a way I've never noticed before. And it's the 30 pieces of silver that Judas gives back and the Pharisees are like, well, we're not going to do anything with this money because this is blood money, so it shouldn't go in the treasury. Um, but the fact that that was what Jesus was worth to people. And as I was like thinking about that earlier when I read that out, it just spoke to me of like, it just, I feel like there's not only a picture and just how insane it was that that was all Jesus was worth. But I think if you can zoom out even from the specificity of that story and you look at how other people treat humans, like what we're paid at jobs, I mean, I mean in a completely different realm, or whatever, ransom money, you know, when people get, the, the value that people will put on a human's life, a human's time, human skill, human effort, it's so minimal. The way people, and, and I don't even mean just in terms of monetary, but the way people treat one another, we can tend to treat one another like we have such little worth and value. And yet you see humans could even do that to Jesus, which is how you know it's so easy for us to do. If they could do that to Jesus, that they could sum up the greatness of our God made man to be worth nothing more than 30 pieces of silver, you know, then it should come as no shock to us when people devalue each of our individual worth. It's just, I don't know. I mean, it's not comforting, but it's also like, man, they could do that to the Lord. They can do that to the Lord. How could they do that to the Lord? But they did. They they surmised that his life was worth, was worth 30 pieces of silver. That's it. And I don't know. I'd have to do the calculations to find it historically what that would translate to, how much money that's worth. But doesn't seem like a lot. Doesn't seem like a lot of money. And that's crazy to me because there's no amount of money in the whole entire world that I could imagine Jesus being being worth infinitely more infinitely more than anything we could ask imagine or dream of oh humans we're so finite Mm, we're so finite in our logic well anyway guys i know that this last portion here it was a short chapter short reading of half the chapter but there's just so many things there's so many things that come up for me that i just wonder about and i don't know if any of these questions or wonderings you can relate to but i just want to wonder them with you It's kind of part of the podcast, I guess. Anyway, I really appreciate you listening to this episode of the Narrow Road Podcast. And I look forward uh, to being with you tomorrow for another one as we finish up Luke chapter 23 and ultimately end with Luke chapter 24 very, very soon. Um, Yeah, come on back. I'll be back here tomorrow. We are going to carry on with the study as we pursue our goal of 365 days of podcasting. Thank you so much for listening and bye-bye.